0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Jason Moore, environmental historian and professor of sociology at Binghampton University, about capitalism and climate breakdown. We discuss his brilliant books, Capitalism in the Web of Life and Anthropocene or Capitalocene, and ask what Marx can teach us about the multiple overlapping ecological crises our planet is currently facing. Thank you as always to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornel West, support us at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at aworldtowinpod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Jason Moore on whether we're really living in the age of the Anthropocene. Hello, Jason Moore, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, Grace. Thank you for having me.
0: Good. So we are going today to be talking, um, about your, uh, well, several of your books. So capitalism in the web of life and Capitalocene or Anthropocene. And I want to start just by asking you about those two words, as many of our listeners might not be au fait with, with both of them. Perhaps they'd be more familiar with the idea of the Anthropocene. Um, but what of your conception, the capitalocene, if I'm saying that right, I've only ever seen it written down. <laughs>
1: I think there's no wrong way to say it. People say, well, it's an ugly word. I say, well, it's an ugly word for an ugly system. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a fantastic question. And for those who are familiar with this strange word, Anthropocene, it is a a geological turn of phrase that means literally age of humanity, age of man, and it distinguishes with the Capitalocene, which says age of capital. And so it's an argument over essentially the origins of today's planetary crisis. There is the Anthropocene of the geologists. That's what I call the geological Anthropocene. And the geological Anthropocene is about the search for and interpretation of what are called golden spikes or these GSSP markers And Essentially, what geologists are looking for are stratigraphic signals in the Earth formation. There are layers of the Earth formation, as we know. One is what's called the bomb spike of 1945 to 1964, associated with, as you can imagine, nuclear testing and the American bombing of Japan. Uh, unnecessarily, I might add, to end World War II. So that's the bomb spike. Another is from the great geographers, Lewis and Maslin, who talk about something called the Orbis spike. The Orbis spike, Orbis is from the Latin for globe, refers to an extraordinary moment of carbon drawdown, not carbon uptick, but carbon drawdown, attendant upon the invasion of the Americas, the rise of capitalism, and the genocide of, of Native American peoples. The result being that soils were undisturbed, forests grew back, global carbon uh, atmospheric uh, carbon dioxide levels went down and contributed to, in fact, capitalism's first great climate crisis in the 17th century. Now, there's another Anthropocene that is, is what's used widely in environmentalist circles, which is what I call the popular Anthropocene. And essentially, it uses a man versus nature model to explain capitalism's crisis. It's very... Susceptible, let us say, to demographic determinism and to techno-scientific determinism. And this is the notion that humanity did it. Its point of origin is usually sometime around what is called the Industrial Revolution, which is a misleading periodization for all sorts of reasons. But essentially, you have the old-fashioned environmentalist claim that it's some combination of demography... And then technology, usually in the form of the steam engine, that detonates around the time of the so-called Industrial Revolution and propels environmental crisis from there. Now, the Capitalocene is an argument about the origins of planetary crisis and a series of propositions about the patterns that have followed since. That point is very important. Capitalocene is not a theory of everything. It does argue that the origins of planetary crisis are to be found immediately in the centuries following Columbus's invasion of the New World in 1492. And it does argue that there is a set of relations of power, profit, and life that begin to form and begin to develop after 1492. So the Capitalocene at base challenges the Neo-Malthusian Anthropocene, which says man versus nature, and says... Crudely speaking, it's climate and class or climate and class in the web of life and looks at the emergent patterns of environmental change, of planetary change that are also emergent patterns of class formation, of imperialism and everything else.
0: The temporality of those two different conceptions seems quite important. How do you think that those two different understandings of time and the time scale along which the crises that seem to have really pushed themselves to the forefront of our collective imagination today should inform our understanding of those crises from climate breakdown to all the kind of interrelated ecological crises that are associated with it?
1: That's a perfect question because how you periodize any kind of problem, climate crisis is one of them, basically tells you what you're going to identify as crucial politically in addressing that problem in the present. So to be clear, neither I nor anyone in the world ecology conversation who embraces the 1492 capitalism disregards the era of the Industrial Revolution. Now, we need to go through and look at where the Industrial Revolution actually was in the 19th century. In brief, my view is that the origins of capitalism as a world ecology of power, profit, and life go to 1492 in the ensuing centuries, where you can see not only the greatest environmental making revolution in human history since the dawn of agriculture, that is about 8,000 years prior, but we can also see the emergence of class structures and structures of domination. So the great proletarianization on both sides of the Atlantic of the plantation revolution of African slavery, the great domestication of women's labor in Europe, but also across the Atlantic, which was the fundamental condition, uh, no less fundamental than drawing uh, property lines around land, the fundamental condition of the great proletarianization that occurs in the 17th and 18th centuries. It allows us to see, especially in the 17th century during this climate crisis I mentioned as a result of the Orbis spike from 1610 itself, the result of the great genocides of the New World, we have the origins of what I call the great capitalogenic trinity that is made by capital, the great capitalogenic trinity of the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, and climate apartheid. And so once we begin to understand that the industrial revolution, so-called, mobilizes the steam engine, let's remember the steam engine itself is invented during this long 17th century of climate crisis. The steam engine is then mobilized to reinforce these dynamics again of the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, climate apartheid. So what What the difference between these two moments does is it says from 1492, you have the emergence of capitalism as a world ecology in which structures of domination are emerging and become fundamental to the worldwide class struggle under capitalism. And in terms of the big geocultural thrust of what I call the civilizing project, which looks like a Christianizing project in the early centuries, civilizing missions, Uh, appear later in the 19th. This is what the French literally call the, the civilizing mission, what the Americans, for instance, call manifest destiny. And then it moves into Truman's point for developmentalism after 1949. And each one of those consigned the vast majority of humankind, largely women and people of color, to nature, to the realm of savagery, to the undeveloped, to the uncivilized, to the unchristian. And so there's an ideological moment to all of this, to what and who gets defined as nature and how domination works through the web of life to not only impose horrific racialized and gendered violence, for instance, but that gendered and racialized violence works because it turns a profit for imperial bourgeoisies and others, but especially.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the conceptualization that you introduce in Capitalism and the Web of Life, the idea of the oikios, if I'm saying that right, and why it's so important to overcome this society nature binary that structures our way of thinking about man and nature in our understanding of um, both capitalism and climate breakdown?
1: The oikos is the pulse of life making, it's generative, it's multi layered, it's creative. We see it in all manner of evolutionary responses. We see it in the coronavirus. We see it over the long arc of capitalist history. In Web of Life, I talked about various contradictions in which the time of capital comes into contradiction with the reproduction time of life. The oikos for me was necessary because we need to find ways to connect with the creative capacities of the Web of Life. In English and other Western languages, we have lots of terms for environmental destruction, for entropy, for devastation, and so on and so forth. We have nothing to really reflect on the life generating pulses of the web of life itself. So that's one key moment. Now, this other question of nature and society is hard to unthink. The first thing I want to remind listeners about is that the Folk concepts that we use in our everyday language of society versus nature have their roots in the imperialist projects of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Back then, there were different languages used for this, but this is the period when in the English language, nature, society, savage, civilization, European, all enter into the language between 1550 and 1700. Now, my point is not to uh, do a, a an etymology here. What we can see in that era itself is the ideological distinction between civilized and savage became something radically, completely different from the old uh, Roman or Greek view of the barbarian. What emerged were civilization and savagery as ideological pillars, as what I've taken to calling ruling abstractions that are produced through the imperialist process of conquest, commodification, and the accumulation uh, and accumulation by appropriation across the colonial world. It starts in Ireland, of course, which everyone forgets. And indeed, Orthodox Marxism especially forgets, but that this language develops And indeed, the whole cosmology develops, at least in the Anglophonic world, in relation to Ireland, who were, of course, wild, savage, uncivilized. They were not ready for civilization. The solution, of course, was work will make you free. That was the uh, the project of the Spaniards and the Portuguese in the Americas as well. So this was not just society and nature as words. These were fundamental pillars of capitalism's geoculture from the very beginning, what I called the Civilizing Project. The antonym of the Civilizing Project was to declare not just the forests and the fields, but women, nature, and colonies as part of this grand practical abstraction called nature with an uppercase N. That was an accumulation strategy because its effect was to radically cheapen, often at the barrel of the gun, but often as well through law, as in John Locke's theory of improvement and its implications for the United States. So it was explicitly and directly linked to the accumulation strategy of historical capitalism, what I call the cheap nature strategy. So to sum this up, when we use these phrases, we shouldn't feel guilty about it. We should be aware, however, that nature and society are not innocent, and that they drip with blood and dirt, to quote Marx on primitive accumulation, that they are fundamental to the geocultural hegemony of capitalism, which is why since the time of Maltus, every time that we see a major wave of working class, peasant anti-colonial revolt, what happens? A return to man and nature. This happened in Maltese's time in the 1790s and early 1800s. This happened again in uh, the 1960s and early 70s around Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb in response to worldwide class revolt against bourgeois hegemony. So we want to be careful that we don't identify this as a semantic dispute. And I've heard people on the left characterize it as that. That's absolutely false. This is a critique of ideology that is directly and immediately related not only to the long history of class struggle, but to the long history of capital accumulation and how both fit together in the web of life.
0: You've spoken a lot about the kind of society nature binary. What of the society economy binary upon which the former distinction often links to and which has been so central to the turn towards neoliberalism?
1: So there is no such thing as society, of course, uh, from Margaret Thatcher. You correctly identified that these binaries are ruling strategies. They are ruling abstractions. So it's not just civilization and nature as these ideological pillars, but then they spawn all manner of other ruling abstractions, including the mythical category of the economy. So the Anthropocene is an anti-politics machine that on the one hand favors an economistic reading uh, and an economistic approach. And on the other hand, favors a kind of techno-scientific expertise approach. And in, in both cases, there's a profound skepticism of democracy and democratization and of the kind of class politics that would involve. So for good reason. Mainstream environmentalism has completely played into this dynamic since the early 1970s. And that mainstream environmentalism, not environmental justice, not climate justice, which which identify systemic dynamics to this process, but the the kind of environmentalism of David Attenborough, if you will, that this basically says it's man versus nature. It's a problem of scientific uh, expertise. What's needed is a proper governance strategy, not... A transformation of historical capitalism, because underneath it all, there is a hardcore climate denialism, but there's also another form that is a kind of capital and class denialism. And in my view, if you are reckoning with climate change and climate politics in any sense and denying the centrality of the world rate of profit and the worldwide class struggle, then you are going to orient yourselves towards solutions that are invariably economistic and technoscientific.
0: One thing you just said there reminded me of a conversation I had a few weeks ago with Matt Lawrence and Laurie Laborn-Langton and we spoke a bit about how climate denialism, which was you know, the preserve of the right up until fairly recently, is now that it has become so much harder to deny the reality of climate breakdown morphed into a kind of eco-fascism. And there's obviously various different politicians around the world who are saying the only response, well, not least uh, Marine Le Pen, who basically said exactly this, that one response to climate breakdown, if not the only response to climate breakdown, is to put up borders, prevent you know refugees from moving out of parts of the world that are being rendered uninhabitable by these processes how do you think that the way that you conceptualize climate breakdown and the breakdown of all of these ecological systems can support the attempt by the left to push back not just against climate denialism but also against this kind of emerging form of ecofascism?
1: Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that that sensibility that you just outlined is there from the beginning of post-1968 environmentalism. So in the famous blueprint for survival from 1972, I believe, the group of scientists call explicitly for limits on migration. Paul Ehrlich famously calls uh, immigrants even more responsible for environmental degradation than the native-born inhabitants of the United States. I think that's from the Golden Door. Lovelock, who uh, has recently been endorsed, and we should touch on this, by Bruno Latour, Lovelock, James Lovelock, Lovelock, the progenitor of the Gaia hypothesis, said explicitly, this was reported in the British press just a few years ago, that uh, more money should be spent on the British Navy in order to keep out uh, immigrants from Africa and so we want to understand in my view that the distance between a really a fundamental stream of mainstream environmentalism and ecofascism that difference is not so great as one would like i mentioned bruno latour and the contrast there with somebody like le pen in france is not that great if you go and look at the kinds of arguments he's been making, which are hugely influential in critical theory across the Anglophonic world. You can see he ends uh, his book down to earth with a call for, quote, a defense of, quote, the European homeland. So there is a profound issue here. In my view, one of the practical political issues swirling around this is that much of the left has embraced an essentially environmentalist conception of politics rather than reinvent and renew a class analysis appropriate for capitalism's worldwide class struggle in the biosphere that includes, as I've been arguing lately, differentiated unity of proletariat, that is workers within the cash nexus, of the femetariat, that is the providers of socially necessary unpaid work especially but not only care work, and the biotariat, the work of nature as a whole in service to capital. Understanding that as a porous and overlapping set of connective tissues, if you will, in terms of class politics, brings us to an entirely different practical strategic orientation than a lot of what's floating around in left environmentalism today
0: how do you think that the kind of the the language of environmentalism and indeed of kind of socialist organizing more generally the language that we're using you know out there in the world can be transformed to account for these kind of dialectical rather than dichotomous relationships does the idea of something like the global green new deal when it attempts to overcome these kind of ecology economics distinctions that that characterize other other forms of environmentalist discourse do you think that that go some way or is useful in in trying to change the categories according to which we understand capitalism and the relationship with uh, with climate or do we need new ways of talking new ways of thinking that go even further
1: well we need to push beyond the the short run question and i have tremendous admiration for for instance the authors of a planet to win and many other texts i think you probably had uh some of those uh, wonderful uh, comrades on on your podcast. We have. Uh, I think think the best hope is that the Green New Deal becomes a kind of gateway drug to a revolutionary synthesis. The danger, of course, and they recognize this full well, is that the Green New Deal is perfectly compatible with the structural crisis of of underinvestment, especially in infrastructure, but also in other industrial sectors across uh, the Atlantic world especially. So it easily gets turned into a great bonanza for so-called green energy. And that I worry uh, will is the most likely outcome given the balance of class politics in places like the United States and the UK. Of course, that could change very fast and historically that's the history of social revolutions. Lenin is talking in February 1917 that there will not be a revolution in his generation. So these developments can move very fast. That said, I think that we need to be wary of the historical metaphor, and we need to understand, first of all, that the New Deal did not rescue the United States from the Great Depression. It was the Great Mobilization for World War II that did that. Second of all, we need to understand that the New Deal itself was an explicit strategy of confronting a great wave of worker control strikes in American industry between 1930 and 32. So these were not just wage and benefit struggles. They were struggles over the terms of the labor process on the shop floor, which, as you can imagine, is a very dangerous challenge to capital. So there are limits to any historical metaphor, though. So I think one takes the ideas and the metaphors as we can when they catch fire. And clearly, the Green New Deal has. However, I think we need to push beyond as as you pointed. And that's not an easy thing to do because it asks us to touch on third rails that nobody wants to touch on, like questions of class politics, class power, like the history of socialist states and their reconstructions without uh, um, romantic illusions about those, but looking at them very seriously. And I think also it destabilizes the supernatural categories at the core of environmentalism and a certain kind of socialist laborism, which is to see these as independent and also as independent from the feminist point about unpaid work. What we need to understand is that for every act of exploitation of surplus value in production, whatever kind of production it is, there is a necessarily larger quantum of unpaid work from women, nature, and colonies that is required for that. And what that disproportionality means is not only do we need a class alliance across that divide of paid and unpaid work, but we also need to begin to understand that what's happening with the climate crisis is not a steady, polite close to cheap nature, to frontiers, to whatever. It is an implosion of the cheap nature model At the core of capitalist development, the web of life is going from a source of advancing labor productivity and reducing costs to its epical inversion of radically reducing labor productivity, the real basis of capital accumulation and inducing rapidly rising costs. In some, climate crisis is bad for business as usual, but as ever, the bourgeoisies are cutting their own throats and unable to deal with it. That's why they're not rushing. There's no enlightened bourgeoisie to rush to push through a Green New Deal uh, sufficient to, say, realize a green energy transition, which wouldn't be effective anyway, but that's a different story.
0: In lots of versions of the Green New Deal, there seems to be a growing recognition that we need to be centering care and care work and unpaid labor in any response to climate breakdown and to all the other crises that we're currently facing. How does this distinction between paid and unpaid labor tie into your idea of the cheap Nature Project?
1: So care work is one central moment of the question of social reproduction, which, as we know, crosses this bridge between paid and unpaid work, not for nothing. Much as James O'Connor 30 years ago anticipated, the invasion, the capital penetration of everyday life, including relations of, of reproduction, is now mobilizing some of the fiercest and most dynamic class struggles in the advanced capitalist world. You see this in the United States, especially around teachers unions and the National Nurses United, certainly the most democratic and most militant union in the United States. So we're seeing a changing terrain of the worldwide class struggle to basically highlight these questions of social reproduction, a significant amount of which is, as you indicate, unpaid. And it's linked intimately to questions of the extrahuman web of life as well. There's a dynamic interplay between the two, as we know, uh, uh, that worldwide women experience much more of the brunt of dislocation and violence from climate change than anyone else. So that said, I think that there's not just the jobs versus environment divide that you highlighted and we were discussing, but also the paid work, unpaid work divide, the question of the second shift. Now, why is this coming to the forefront right now? It's coming to the forefront at this moment because the frontiers of unpaid work are imploding. It's not that a little bit more can't be squeezed out, but we are back essentially to Marx's problem in the Working Day chapter of Capital, in which he asks, well, why is it that capitalists tend to work their workers to death when it's obviously very expensive? And his answer is, well, if they can go to Ireland, if they can go to other labor frontiers, they can draw physically uncorrupted workers, that was his term, and put them into the vortex of industrial production, and no one's the wiser. So. That model works as long as there are labor frontiers. Today, there are no significant frontiers to counteract that tendency. People always identify, well, here's a frontier here, here's a frontier there. Yes, but those are not sufficient any longer to offset the basic problem, which is a squeeze on unpaid work. And that's going to, that is already generating fundamental political questions.
0: We talk a lot about the COVID-19 pandemic as a kind of natural phenomenon that is exogenous to capitalist relations of production. But how could we understand the pandemic as something that has emerged not from nature, but from the dialectical relationship between society and nature?
1: Well, I would say we can look at it, this might sound nitpicky, but we can look at it as an an environment-making project of a given mode of production. And historically, what we always see is that long-term, large-scale land clearance, environmental transformation, the construction of very large-scale infrastructures of trade, those invariably in the history of civilizations produce the conditions for catastrophic pandemics. So this was famously the case with feudal Europe in the 14th century where a climate class disease conjuncture came together to essentially put an end to the feudal mode of production. The return of catastrophic disease is essentially inevitable. And that is exactly what we've seen with the pandemic, that it goes to the point there is no such thing as a natural disaster. Yes, that's one point. But the other point is that the pandemic is what I would call a signaling crisis of capitalism as a historical system. That is, it is one of these very, very significant canary in a coal mine moments that tells you that the coal mine is filling up with carbon monoxide and you're going to die unless fundamental action is taken. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that all humans are going to die. I think that that's a dangerous, catastrophist position. But I am saying that it is emphatically a signaling crisis that is an emergent property of capitalism as a world ecology of power, profit and life.
0: Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic will represent a fundamental break in the capitalist scene, perhaps the emergence of a new kind of historical nature, as you call it in Capitalism and the Web of Life?
1: Well, I think we are already entering into a new historical nature that I think even many geologists and Earth system scientists would agree. We are seeing the end of the Holocene. So, the Holocene is that 11,700 year period of unusual climate stability that is now being brought to an end by capitalogenic climate change. This point of a fundamental tipping point. I think is important to clarify. So I think it is one moment of a cascading series of socio-ecological fractures, ruptures, and problems that I put under the heading of negative value. Negative value signifies relations, including human social movements, by the way, that are increasingly unsolvable through capitalism's politics and business as usual. Now, the climate moment looms large, and because environmentalism and also much of the left is not very well versed in climate history, this may not be very obvious. But since the Bronze Age crisis, which was about 3,000 years ago, more or less in the 12th century BCE, the, the connection between serious episodes of climate change and civilizational crisis has been very, very tight. This was the case of the fall of the Roman West in the 5th and 6th centuries during the Dark Ages Cold Period. It was the case of feudalism at the dawn of the Little Ice Age. What's the takeaway here? That fundamental episodes of climate change are bad for everyone over the short run. Over the middle run, they are profoundly destabilizing for ruling classes. That is really, really important to keep in mind because There is a kind of magical thinking that goes on amongst uh, people, both in the left and in in environmental circles, which basically says, yes, there is a nonlinear shift in the climate system that is occurring. But capitalism is resilient. Capitalism will continue to work in a linear way. I see no evidence for that historically. Now, I'm happy to be. Well, I don't know if I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I'm open to be proven wrong around this. But climate is not. Everything, But it's impossible to explain anything about capitalism's world history without identifying the climate moments that were linked to particular kinds of historical natures and social developments. So this is the case with the plantation revolution in the 16th and 17th century. It forms during the very worst of the Little Ice Age, partly as a result or contributed to by um, the Orbis spike and capitalogenic climate change in that sense. So... Is it a tipping point? Is the pandemic as such? No, but it is one of the signaling crises that I think will come faster and faster. I think they will also be unpredictable. Not that the pandemic was totally unpredictable. Mike Davis, Rob Wallace, many other great thinkers have been sounding the alarm for a long time, but we will see more and more unpredictable in terms of theory contradictions that are appearing. And I think that a, a project of, of planetary justice has to be able to deal with the cascade of non-linearity that is coming.
0: You speak a lot about the need to change of vocabularies and methodologies when it comes to talking about capitalism and ecology. But what about how, how your ideas should inform our practice, particularly how we go about practicing these ideas within social movements, the kinds of things that we're demanding. This podcast is a world to win. We are all about taking theory and seeing how we can translate that into practice. So what do you think are the implications of your ideas for the way that we organize?
1: Well, one of the potential contributions is that it provides a way of having discussions to transcend the great divide, not only between ecology and economy, but also between domination and exploitation. So we are living through an, ad- an identitarian moment, which tends to present different identities. It can be nation, but also race and gender and sexuality and so forth. It tends to present these as autonomous sacred categories to quote marx when he was criticizing the german socialists around labor there is an attachment to the supernatural powers of one or another of these themes in in the case of marx's criticism it was labor believe it or not so we need to look very seriously at the kinds of conversations in the movements that often are very divisive they certainly are in the united states at this moment What I would say is that, yes, of course, racism and sexism are absolutely fundamental to capitalism. Indeed, I believe that super exploitation is the normal state of class exploitation in the capitalist world. Ecology, it's normal because of the the geocultural force of racism and sexism. Let's also remember that racism and sexism specifically emerge at a specific time in this long, cold 17th century of climate crisis, And they specifically emerge out of the civilizing project of early modern states and empires. That's not a small thing. That is to say, these are not metaphysics. And so we need to have a conversation that connects and therefore begins to dissolve some of these metaphysical attachments, whether it's a metaphysical attachment to nature, race, gender, class, whatever it is, in favor of Connective imaginaries, and I know your question is about practicalities, but I think that that is a fundamental point because if one begins to take these autonomous sacred categories, like I said, it could be economy, it could be environment, it could be class, it could be uh, uh, race. If one takes those on their own terms, one is in fact reproducing the worldview of capitalist modernity. So. Let me give you a concrete example of the role of ideology, I think, in movements. We have, at least in North America, a widespread attachment to something called settler colonialism. Now, once upon a time, settler colonialism was an analytical concept that was used to talk about class formation in what were called white settler colonies like the United States, South Africa, Australia. That's not what it means anymore. Essentially, what it implicates is a kind of clash of civilizations perspective, only it's inverted. So the uh, oppressors are not celebrated as enlightened universalizers. The the oppressed are celebrated. And this is a fundamentally disarming strategy because we have essentially two versions of ethno-national fundamentalisms, one more open and for pluralism, one less open and for a kind of white supremacism. But they are two sides of the same coin. So... What's needed is to, I think, make the turn back to class politics, but to do it in a way that understands the proletariat is not only the wage worker. The proletariat is a differentiated unity of the wage worker, the femetariat, the providers of unpaid socially necessary work, and the biotariat, the work of nature. As a whole. And that's not to collapse, say they're not all the same, but they're all differentiated. It's a dialectical weave of relationships. But that can open up ways to recognize, for instance, the unpaid work of uh, the web of life as a whole, the unpaid work of overwhelmingly women providing socially necessary unpaid work in a dynamic alliance between different moments of the world's working classes.
0: Thank you so much, Jason Moore, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. This was an absolutely fascinating discussion, as I'm sure all our listeners will agree. And we will put links to where you can buy Jason's books and follow him on Twitter in the description. Thanks again, Jason.
1: Thank you, Grace. A real pleasure.